The following audio is from First Baptist Pelham in Pelham, Alabama. More information about First Baptist Pelham is available at fbcpelham.org. so very much. I wish my wife had been here to hear that. (laughs) I'm not sure she knows what a wonderful man she's married to. But but anyway, I'm so, what a wonderful Sunday night crowd. You know, there's an interesting verse in Psalm 40. Uh, David said, the Lord hath put a new song in my mouth and many shall see it. That's not the way we talk, is it? We say, many shall hear it. How do you see a song? Well, when I look at your choir, I am seeing a song. They've blessed me so much tonight and this morning as well, but choir, are they singing tomorrow night? Every night. I'm coming tomorrow night to hear the choir. I've heard the preaching. (laughs) I'm coming tomorrow night to hear the choir, and we're going to see a song as they share the message of God with us. But thank you so very, very much. And Paul, I'm really having it. You're, you're one of the sweetest, kindest, and certainly most attractive ministers of music I've ever met. Now, if some of y'all think that's sexist, just get over it. (laughs) I'm just telling you, most ministers of music that I'm with, I don't even know if they're saved or not. Well, Well, all right, take your Bible and turn to to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. How many of you like Matthew chapter 1? Well, that's a great response. (laughs) One lady said, I don't like Matthew chapter 1 because of all that begetting. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and and they begat so-and-so, and and they begat. Well, honey, if it hadn't been for all that begetting, you never would have been begot. So be grateful. (laughs) Amen. Well, since we didn't get a rounding uh, amen on Matthew 1, let's just turn backwards. Go in the last book of the Old Testament. What is it? Malachi, the call for a godly priesthood. How many of you like Malachi? Well, not many, because that talks about tithing, and that kind of irritates some of us. So go ahead. What's next? Going straight back. What's next? (laughs) Zechariah, the day of God's wrath. How many of you like Zechariah? What's next? Haggai, build the house of God. How many of you like Haggai? (laughs) What's next? Zephaniah, the blessing of obedience. How many of you like Zephaniah? That's more of you than even ever read it. (laughs) What's next? Habakkuk. How many of you like Habakkuk? Well, you just swell too. That's where we're stopping, all right? <laughs> Somebody said, Brother Bob, why did you do it like that? Because if I had stood and say, take your Bibles and turn to Habakkuk, I would have been through preaching by the time you found. 
You know, we really don't know very much about these Old Testament minor prophets, uh, uh, but we need to know, what are you going to do when you get to heaven and Nahum comes up and says, how'd you like my book? <laughs> so we need to read these Old Testament prophets. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stall. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The book of Habakkuk was written at a time when the people of God in Judah were living farther away from God than they had ever lived before. You know, it's amazing to me how many of God's people seem to be so content to live so far away from God. Now that's certainly not the way God wants it. But so many believers are seemingly very happy to live far away from God. The very opposite ought to be true. It ought to be in the heart of a child of God to want to live as close to God as they can possibly live. The old hymn writer had it right when he said, Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. And God saw his people living far away from him. And it was not that they were being ungodly towards other nations. It was that they were being ungodly to one another. They were lying to each other, cheating one another, committing adultery with one another, defrauding one another, stealing from one another. And God said, hey, that's not why I called you to be my chosen people. I called you to be my chosen people so that the rest of the world could look at you and see that it makes a difference when you have a relationship with me. But God said, nobody's going to want to know me because of the way you live. He said, you have pushed me too far. God said, I've had all of it. I'm going to take. I'm not going to put up with it anymore. I'm going to send judgment on you. And when this judgment comes, it's not going to be just a, a slap on the wrist or a tongue lashing. It's going to be a very, very severe judgment. And God said, Habakkuk, you go tell my people that because of their living in such an ungodly state and treating each other in such an ungodly manner that I'm going to send real severe judgment upon them. And Habakkuk said, yes, sir. And so Habakkuk goes into Judah and he begins to proclaim the coming judgment of God. And in verse 17 that I read for you tonight, verse 17 is a summary of the judgment that God sent upon the people of Judah. Now when you read verse 17, it doesn't seem to be such a big deal to us. But you have to remember that those people in that culture, in that day, they were an agricultural nation. America used to be an agricultural nation primarily, and we still have some large pockets of agriculture, but, but by and large, America has moved into the high-tech world. 
When you think of America, you don't think of it as an agricultural nation. You think of it as a high-tech nation. And so these judgments might not appear to be such a big deal to us, but it was a big deal to them. Now look again at verse 17. He says in verse 17, although the fig tree shall not blossom. Now see, that doesn't seem to be such a big deal. I mean, unless you're hooked on fig newtons, that's probably not going to keep you awake at night. The fig tree shall not blossom. Now, here's an interesting thing. Fig trees never did blossom. Fig trees don't have blossoms. They have leaves, and then they have figs, and there's no blossom. In between, the fig is the blossom. And so when God said there will be no figs that will blossom, no blossoms in the fig trees, God is simply saying there's not going to be any more figs. When this judgment comes, there will be no more figs. Again, big deal. But to them, figs were the basic ingredient in their diet. You see, fig trees grew everywhere. They required no maintenance at all. Nobody had to water them. Nobody had to prune them. Nobody had to take care of them. They just grew. As a matter of fact, fig trees were called the people's tree. Nobody really even claimed to own them because they were so plentiful and so prosperous. Anybody could go up to any fig tree anywhere, pull all they want, eat them, take them home. And because there was so many figs, figs became the basic ingredient of their diet. And so when God said no more figs. That was a big, big deal. Then he said, secondly, there'll be no more fruit in the vine. That means no more grapes. Grapes were not only used for food. Grapes were used for the wine that they drank. Now, it wasn't like the hard distilled liquor that we have today, but it was a very mild form. And usually it was used, mixed in with water to purify the water because a lot of the water was contaminated. But when God said there'll be no more grapes, that was devastating to those people. No more real, fresh, clean, anything to drink. No more figs, no more grapes. And then he said, the labor of the olive shall fail. Olive trees were not law at all like fig trees. Fig trees required no maintenance. They were, they, you didn't have to do anything to them. But olive trees are very different. They're a very high maintenance tree. If they're going to produce olives, you're going to have to work. And you're going to have to work real hard to make them produce. You have to constantly deal with them. You have to cultivate them. You have to prune them back. And if an olive tree is going to bear olives, they have, somebody's got to spend hours and hours and hours. But God said the labor of the olive shall fail. That word fail means to, to lay down on the ground and die. God said when this judgment comes, I don't care how much time you put into it. I don't care how hard you work. I don't care how much labor goes into it. It'll all be for nothing because when this judgment comes, every olive tree will lay down on the ground and die and there'll be no more olive. That was a devastating blow. Because you see, olives not only were used to eat, olive oil was used for very essential things in their life. First of all, it was used for cooking. Some of you cook in canola oil, some in mazola oil, some in wesson oil, some in crisco oil, but everything those people cooked was in olive oil. Almost every dish they prepared, olive oil was one of the primary ingredients in it. But also olive oil was used as the base of all of their medicine. 
And so when God said no more olive oil, no more olives, that meant there would be no oil to cook with and no more medicine. When you get sick, tough. You've sinned. You've gone away from me. And this is the judgment. And then he said there'll be no more meat. In the field, the word meat there means grain. No more wheat, no more barley. That's what they used to make bread. In every culture, every society throughout history, bread has been a very important part of people's lives. Uh, Jesus said man shall not live by bread alone, and that's true, but he does live by bread. You think of life without bread. What What a tragedy that would be for most of us. Maybe you don't eat it, but most do. So God said when this judgment comes, there'll be no more figs, there'll be no more grapes, there'll be no more olives, there'll be no more grain. And then look what else he says there at the end of verse 17. He says, and the flock shall be cut off from the fold. Now the fold was a little small, portable, temporary, movable fence. It was used to house small animals like sheep. The shepherd in the morning would gather up that little fence, throw it over his shoulder, and he would lead his sheep for a day's journey. And then when the shadows of evening began to fall, he would take that off of his shoulder. He would set it up. He would put the sheep inside of it and close it up. And that little fold, that little sheep fold, was that little small portable fence where the small animals were housed from day to day. But God says... There are not going to be any small animals in the fold. They're going to be cut off. Now that can mean that God is going to send a disease and kill them. Or it can mean that some warring tribe is going to come in and steal them. Or it can mean that God's just going to reach down and pick them up and carry them somewhere else. But God said, when I send this judgment, there will be no more small animals. And then look at the last phrase of verse 17. He said, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Now, whereas the fold was a little small, portable, movable fence, the stall was a big, permanent, massive fixture where the large animals were, were, were kept like, uh, like oxen and cows and even horses. But God says there'll be no more large animals. Now, again, that may not mean a big deal to us. But you have to understand, they didn't have John Deere tractors in that day. If they were going to plow, they put a plow on the back of an ox, and the ox pulled the plow. But God says, you have sinned. You have pushed me too far. I've had all I'm going to take. I'm not going to put up with it anymore, and I'm going to send this judgment. There will be no more grapes. There will be no more figs. There will be no more olives. There will be no more grain. There will be no more small animals. There will be no more large animals. And to an agricultural world, it was absolute devastation. As a matter of fact, When that judgment came, the response would simply be, things just cannot get any worse. Things just cannot get any worse. What do you do? What do you do when things cannot get any worse? Maybe you've said that this year. 
Maybe something has happened in your life. Maybe, maybe something devastating has taken place. Maybe the death of a loved one. Maybe the loss of a job. Maybe the, the, the rebellion of a young person. But, but something has happened and, and maybe you've said sometime this year, I don't see how things can get any worse. Maybe you've said that since last Sunday. Maybe some heartache, some burden, some crisis has come. And you said, I don't see how things can get any worse. What do you do when things can't get any worse? Do you bury your head in the sand like the proverbial ostrich and hope that when you draw your head out of the sand, things will be better? What do you do when things cannot get any worse? Well, that's what verse verse 18 is about. Three little things. When things cannot get any worse, there are three things to remember. Number one, when things cannot get any worse, remember the power of yet. Y-E-T. Yet. Look at it in verse 17. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat, and the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls yet. You know what that means? That means the fat lady hadn't sung yet. Amen. It means the last chapter has not been written yet. In the words of that great theologian, Yogi Berra, it ain't over till it's over. Amen. The power of yet. Paul knew the power of yet. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and he said, we are troubled on every side, yet we're not distressed. Paul said, everywhere we go, we find opposition. The religious crowd, they don't like us. The military crowd, they don't like us. The government crowd, they don't like us. Everywhere we turn, we find oppression and opposition. Yet, we're not distressed. We haven't lost our song. We're not throwing in the towel. We're not quitting because of the power of yet. Job knew the power of yet. Job knew death was a reality for everybody. Today when people die, they, their bodies are prepared and they're put in a steel coffin and that coffin is put in a concrete vault. But in the day of Job, they didn't have steel coffins. They didn't have concrete vaults. You wrapped a body in linen and put it in the ground and as soon as that body was in the ground, maggots from all over the county came to feast on that brand new dead body. And in Job 19, Job says, And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Isn't that good? The power of yet. There's some of you right here. You've experienced the power of yet in your life. There are some of you sitting right here in this auditorium tonight, and 10 years ago, a doctor looked you in the face and said, you're not going to live six months, and here you sit because of the power of yet. There's some of you that five years ago, it looked like you were going to go under financial, you were going to go bankrupt, you were going to lose everything you had, and here you sit tonight, comfortable in your financial condition because of the power of yet. 
There's some of you sitting here tonight as a happy married couple, and eight years ago it looked like you were headed for divorce court. You couldn't stand each other. You didn't want to be around each other. You wouldn't even hardly speak to each other. And now here you are in love with each other, enjoying the blessing of God in your home because of the power of yet. Beloved, it's not over till God says it's over. And when things just cannot get any worse, maybe you've got yourself in a condition. Maybe something has happened. Maybe you've even brought it upon yourself and you wonder how did I get in this mess how did I get in this shape how can I get out of it don't get discouraged don't throw in the towel remember the power of yet number two when things just cannot get any worse not only remember the power of yet but remember the person to whom You belong. Look in verse 17. He said, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. As a child of God, you belong to him. The Bible says you've been bought with a price. You're not your own. You belong to him. And here the Lord is identified by two names. The first is the word Lord. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And you notice the word Lord there, all four letters are capitalized. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the translation of the word Yahweh. It's the name of God that speaks of his love and his mercy. Yahweh was the name that God used when he entered into covenant relationships with people. It speaks of his grace and kindness and his forgiveness. There is no sin God will not forgive. There is no person God cannot save because he is loving and merciful and kind. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. God does not hate you. God has not turned his back on you. God loves you and he reaches out to you and will forgive you if you ask him to. That's because he's the Lord. He's a loving, merciful, gracious, tender, forgiving God. And you belong to him. And then he's called God. Capital G, little O, little D. That's a translation of the Hebrew word El. It's an abbreviation of Elohim. That speaks of the God of power, the God of majesty, the God of might, the God of glory, the God of strength, the God that no army can overthrow, the God that no government can abandon forever, the God that no liberal can deny. He's God. He's big. He's tough. He's strong. He's mighty. And we belong to him. And when you put those two together, he's the Lord God. He's loving and merciful and gracious and kind and forgiving and tender and always willing to receive those who will come unto him. And if you come to him, he's big enough, strong enough, tough enough, God enough to overcome any enemy. He will be there with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He's stronger than the devil. He's stronger than demons. He's stronger than sin. He is God and he will be. He is there. He's you. You belong to him he's not the big daddy in the sky he's not some cog in the master universe he's your father and he loves you hey 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 there may not be any figs and there may not be any grapes and there may not be any olives and there may not be any grain and there may not be any small animals and there may not be any large animals but I belong to somebody 
I belong to somebody. I'm not some piece of flotsam floating down the sands of time. I'm a child of God, bought with a price, purchased by his blood, indwelled by his spirit. I belong to somebody. And so, when things just cannot get any worse, remember, it's not over till God says it's over. And remember, you're his child. You belong to him. He's your father. And then one other thing. When things cannot get any worse, not only should you remember the power of yet and the person to whom you belong, remember the provision he has made for you. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Aren't you glad to be saved? I'm telling you, I've never found anything better than getting saved. Some days I wish I was lost, so I get saved all over again. I'm telling you, I just love being saved. I've never lost the wonder of it. I've never lost the thrill of it. I've never experienced anything like it. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despair and cry and from the waters lifted me now safe am I I tell you if y'all let me go out and haul a minute I just have a spell <laughs> amen oh saved we're saved there may not be any figs but I'm still saved there may not be any grapes, but I'm still saved. There may not be any large animals or small animals or grain or, or olives, but I'm still saved. I was in a revival meeting in another state about a year ago, and it was not Alabama, thank God. I'd never been to this church before. It was my first time. And when I pulled into the parking lot, I got out of the car, got my coat, got my Bible, and went in and and when I walked in the vestibule foyer area, there was a man standing there, and he looked at my, they had a picture of me on the wall. He, he looked at that picture, and then he looked at me, then he looked at that picture, and he looked at me. And he said, are you, are you Bob Pittman? I said, yes, sir. He said, you've come to preach our revival? I said, yes, sir, I have. He said, well, I'm the minister of music here. And he said, there's some things you need to know before you preach this revival meeting. I don't know who created these things, but I do hope they have to go to hell for five seconds. It might be all right for country singers, but I'm telling you, for a, for a sweating preacher, they're terrible. He said, I'm the minister of music, and there's some things I need to tell you before you preach in our church. I said, okay. He said, now, we're a very upbeat church. We're, we're not traditional. And I said, well, that's okay. I don't care. He said, now, we don't sing anything older than 10 years old. We sing all new stuff. I said, that's okay. I don't care. And he said, now, we don't use the jargon that a lot of churches use. We don't talk that church talk here. He said, for example, we don't use the word saved here. That's what he said. 
And I'll tell you, that guy just ticked me off. <laughs> he made me mad. Now, I think when you stand up on Sunday morning and preach, you ought to be in the Spirit. But if I have to preach in the flesh, I can still do it. And I went into the pulpit that morning and I took my text, Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I used the word saved about 136 times. And I gave the invitation and the first one down the aisle to get saved was his wife. The second one down the aisle to get saved was his son. And he just pouted all week long. That's why I like you so much. <laughs> Folks, there's not anything wrong with the word saved. This is a good word. I'm glad I'm saved. Life now is sweet and my joy is complete. For I'm saved, saved, saved. So when things just cannot get any worse, don't throw in the towel, don't quit, don't run, don't hide. Just remember. Just remember the power of yet. It's not over till God says it's over. And remember the person to whom you belong. You're a child of the King. You belong to the Lord God. He's not distant and far off. He's your Father and He loves you. And remember the provision He's made for you. He saved you by His grace. He's not going to abandon you in the hard times. Now, if you'll do those three things, when you get down, when you get low, when you get burdened, when you, get, when you drift away, if you'll remember the, the power of yet and the person to whom you belong and the provision of salvation that God has made for you, two things will happen in your life. Number one, in verse 18, yet I will rejoice. You can rejoice even in the hard time. The word rejoice is an interesting word. In, in his Hebrew text, it literally means to turn about or to whirl around. It is a picture. <laughs> I hate to bring this up. But I didn't write this. I'm just a delivery boy. Amen. It's a picture of dancing. Hey, David danced before the Lord. Why should he be the only one? Amen. Amen. I think it has to do more internal than external. But even in the darkest night, you can dance before the Lord. I don't do weddings anymore. I've, I've done hundreds of them, I guess. And I never did like any of them. Had nothing to do with the bride or the groom. I, I, I just didn't like weddings. And the reason was because of the The bride's mother. <laughs> I'm telling you, something happens to a woman when she becomes the bride's mother. It's like a werewolf at full moon. The fangs come out. <laughs> I mean, sweet, gracious, lovely little ladies. Boy, whoo, mercy. You talk about going through a change. They do when they, <laughs> when they become the mother of the bride. So I don't do weddings anymore. I just don't do them. I got a call a year or so ago from a man, and he said, Brother Bob, this is William. And he said, you remember years ago you 
did my daughter's wedding. You performed her wedding. I said, yes, I remember that. He said, well, now her daughter's getting married and the church where they're members, they don't have a pastor right now. Brother Bob, would you, would you do their wedding? It would mean so much to our family. He caught me at a bad time. I said, yes. <laughs> well, I, I did what I always did and counseling with couples I had a count of session with her by herself a session with him by himself and then a session the three of us together and and so I found out in those counseling sessions this young couple I mean they really did love the Lord they they honored him they served him they lived for him and and they had not been sexually active they they had kept themselves pure for their wedding night and and so it was a joy to be a part of their wedding and so the night of the wedding came and it was not a church this large but a pretty good sized church and and when I got there the place was packed everybody knew this young couple and loved them and man the house was full people standing around the sides of the wall and so the, you know they played that music you come in by and, and so we all filed in we took our place and, and then those back doors opened and they sang that here comes the bride the bridal march you know played it on the organ and, and they came down and boy it was sweet it was really really a nice wedding and so they got down to the front and I said who gives this woman to be married to this man he said uh, her mother and I said thank you go sit down and so the bride and the groom they joined hands they came up on the platform with me and we went through the ceremony I said do you take her he said I do do you take him I do you got a ring put it on you got a ring put it on kiss the bride and you may turn and they face the congregation and I did as I always did I said ladies and gentlemen it gives me great joy to present to you for the very first time mr and mrs and the whole you know everybody applauded like they always do and then that's when they're supposed to play the recessional that ba 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 da ba and everybody marches out they didn't do that man i'm telling you some groovy music came on i didn't even know where it was coming from the organist wasn't there and this music started playing and and they didn't march out they danced out, all the way down the aisle. This young man, young lady, they, would, they danced all the way out. And I thought, my soul! <laughs> this is church! <laughs> and the Lord just kind of nudged my heart and said, Now, preacher, you just hush. That young couple loved me. They've honored me. They live for me. And if anybody has a right to dance out of my house, they do. Just let them alone. And so I stood there like a statue waiting on somebody to come get the grandmother. <laughs> but I want to tell you in my heart I was getting with it. <laughs> and so, even when things cannot get any worse... Remember the power of yet. Remember the person to whom you belong. Remember the provision of salvation he's made. And even in the deepest valley, you can dance in your heart before him. And then he said, I will joy in the God of my salvation. Now the word joy is not the same as rejoice. The word joy literally means to shout. Young people, I've been preaching 50 years. When I started preaching as a 16-year-old youth preacher, man, I'd go in churches and people would shout. I heard a little bit tonight, <laughs> to be honest with you. 
But I mean, back in those days, people would shout. And they weren't drawing attention to themselves. They were not putting on a show, Brother Mike. I mean, they just got so full of Jesus, they either had to shout or explode. And I'd prefer them to shout. Amen. <laughs> Boy, today, in most churches, you don't hear any shouting. Well, Brother Bob, you don't want people to think we're charismatic, do you? Well, now that possibility is so remote, why even bring it up? <laughs> I don't know many Baptist churches today in danger of being called charismatic. You don't have to worry about that. And so the word has a secondary meaning. So just forget that I said shout. I'm sorry I brought it up. The secondary meaning of the word shout is to praise. Praise. And shouting is one way of praising God, but there are other ways to do it. Uh, you can sing. Singing is a means of praise. Uh, the, the clapping of the hands is a means of praise. The lifting of hands is a means of praise. And I love to watch Baptists try. <laughs> you know, our assembly of God, brothers and sisters, now they got it down. They can just do it. But Baptists, we just, you know, we kind of look around. And... <laughs> But there are a lot of ways to praise God. The important thing is to do it. I made a decision a few years ago, really, in my life and in my ministry. And next to my salvation experience, it's the most important decision I ever made. I said, Lord, I don't know how long I'm going to live. I don't know how much more time I have. But I make you this promise from this point on. I'm not going to whine my way to heaven. I'm not going to gripe my way to heaven. I'm not going to fuss my way to heaven. I'm not going to criticize my way to heaven. I'm going to praise my way to the Father's house. Amen. And folks, it has, it has revolutionized my life. I just soon hang out with me as anybody. I'm just being honest. I have fun. I enjoy who I am and what I do. I do. I even have my jokes numbered. I don't have to tell myself a joke. I can just call the number. Twelve. <laughs> that's a good one. I'm telling you. That's great. And that's, I'm telling you, that's just the way to be. Amen. <laughs> Life is too short. Life is too short to be beaten down and burdened down all the time. Miserable and unhappy. I'm a child of God and I'm, I know sometimes tragedies come and heartaches come that we cannot avoid and we don't try to orchestrate them into our lives but they come and for a while they may get us down but when I remember the power of yet and I remember the person to whom I belong and I remember the salvation that he's given to me I can dance in my heart before him in the darkest night I can I can praise him in the deepest valley and that's the way I'm going to heaven Maybe you're here tonight and you need something special from God. You know, revival, revival is a time for God's people. You can't revive folks who've never been revived. Revival is a time for God's people. Now, thank God, in a lot of revivals, people get saved. And, oh, if you're here tonight and you've never been saved, this message may have seemed like crazy to you, but... 
I hope you got enough out of it to know that Jesus died for you and God loves you and He stands with open arms to receive you. Doesn't matter who you are or where you live, the color of your skin or what you've done. If you'll just come, if you'll just come, that's how you get saved. You come to Him. I pastored in Memphis for 20 years. One of my sweetest friends was Dr. Adrian Rogers. Dr. Rogers was pastor of Bellevue for over 30 years, and, and, and he and I preached together in a lot of conferences across America together, and, and I just loved him. When his wife would be out of town, and Joyce was always at these women's events speaking, and Joyce always made Adrian eat this old dumb stuff, beans, sprouts, and curds, and whey. But when she was out of town, he'd call me. He'd say, meet me. That's all he'd say. Meet me. I knew what that meant. It meant in five minutes I better be at El Chico Mexican restaurant. <laughs> and Adrian and I would meet at El Chico when the guy flew. He said, You want some ice cream? Sure. And we'd go eat ice cream. And he'd say, Don't tell Joyce. Well, I never did. But every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, every service in which Adrian ever preached, he would always step down to the main floor, and when he gave the invitation, he said, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. That little word, come, is such a big word. You see, you can't come here if you stay there. So come means you're going to leave where you are and move to somewhere else. That's what repentance is. You don't have to know all the theological ramification of repentance. You just leave where you are and come to Jesus. That's repentance. You leave that old lifestyle. You leave that old junk. You leave that heartache. You leave all of that past and just come to Jesus. And He'll save you. He'll save you. I promise you He will. So if you're here tonight and you've never been saved, why don't you come to Jesus? Just come to Jesus. One of these ministers is going to be standing here. And any one of them you come to can tell you about Jesus. Any one of them. Tell you how you can be saved. You may have walked in this building lost, but you can walk out of here tonight a child of God. Amen. If you'll just come to Jesus. come to, And then maybe you're here tonight and you're a Christian. And maybe you've been going through a tough time. And maybe you've even said in recent days, I don't see how things can get any worse. And you've gotten low and you've gotten beaten down and the devil's always there to beat up on you. And tonight God's spoken to your heart. You've laughed at some of the things I've said, but that's not where the joy has come from. You've, the joy has come from the fact that God has shown you you don't have to stay in that state of discouragement and defeat forever. You can come to Him and say, Lord God, I'm going to make that same commitment that fat preacher made. I'm not going to spend the rest of my life whining and griping and fussing and complaining. For the rest of my life, whether it's 10 days or 10 years or, or 100 years, I'm going to spend my life praising my way to the Father's house. So you need to do that, then come. Let's stand together. Father, thank you for this time. Lord, it's been so sweet here. What a good time we've had. And that should not surprise anybody because you're the author of all the good time. And so, Lord, if there's anybody here tonight who's never been saved, maybe a little boy, a little girl, maybe a young man, a young lady, maybe a grandmother, a grandfather, and they've never given their heart to Jesus, I pray they'd come tonight. I pray they'd come and take one of these men who will be standing here and say, I want to be saved tonight. I want to be saved. And Lord, I believe there are Christians here tonight who ought to come to this altar.
and just make a fresh start. Lord, I'm putting it all on the altar. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to commit myself to the truth that's not over till you say it's over. I'm going to rejoice again in you that I belong to you and that you saved me. And Lord, tonight I start fresh. I make a brand new commitment to praise you till I get to the house. In Jesus' name. Amen. We sing our hymn of invitation as we sing. Won't you come? Just come on right now. Come on. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about First Baptist Pelham and other free resources like this one, log on to fbcpelham.org.